I've got a challenge for you this morning. You ready? Okay, I want you to try to stick out your tongue and touch your nose. It's okay, you're watching online, no one else is gonna see you. Go ahead, stick out your tongue and try to touch your nose. Yeah, I, I, I can't do it either. You know, only 5% of the population is actually able to do that, to touch their nose with their tongue. You know, a story is told of another seemingly impossible stunt challenge that was once given by an unbeliever to the great Jewish rabbi Hillel. The unbeliever said that if Hillel could teach him all of Torah while standing on one foot, that he would convert to Judaism. Hillel, it is said, happened to have a yardstick in his hand and responded by using the stick to drive the unbeliever out of his presence. As the story goes, the unbeliever then went to Hillel's chief rival, the rabbi Shammai, and posed the same challenge. Shammai, without hesitation, accepted the challenge and summed up the Torah like this. What is hateful to you, do not do to anyone else. This is the whole law. All the rest is only commentary. In the passage from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount that we're going to consider today, we're going to hear Jesus say something very similar, but also deliver a far greater challenge than just standing on one leg or sticking out your tongue and touching your nose. Here's what he said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Luke recorded this command with slightly different wording in Luke 6.31. He says, as you wish others would do to you, do so to them. This verse, of course, is what is commonly called the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I'd like to help you examine this well-known maxim in three ways. First, let's consider who this fits, how this fits into the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Second, how is the Jesus command different from that given by the ancient Rabbi Shammai? And third, what would it look like if we took up the challenge. So question number one, how does this fit in with the rest of the sermon? Jesus begins his statement with a little word, so, which would seem to tie it into something prior. Now there are at least two things prior to this to which it could be connected. What immediately precedes this statement was Jesus' assurance that those who seek God in prayer can be assured that he's a good father who will answer. So it's possible that flowing out of that, Jesus is saying, just as our Heavenly Father can be trusted to be good to us, so we too should be good to each other. Now, that is possible, but it doesn't quite ring true with me. Another option is that it is tying into the larger theme we've seen Jesus tackle again and again, his condemnation of hypocrisy and his exhortation to stop self-righteously judging and condemning others. In that case, this would tie into verses 1 through 5 of chapter 7 where Jesus says, do not judge. 
So just as we wish to be treated with grace and kindness, so too we should extend the same to others. That feels like a pretty consistent theme. So if I were going to make a strong connection with the overall flow of this sermon, that's the connection that I would lean toward. However, the version of this sermon that Luke records in his gospel lays things out a bit differently. Here's what it says in Luke 6, 27 through 31. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Now, if you compare Matthew and Luke's versions of this sermon, you'll find the message themes are very parallel, but both differ slightly in organization as well as some of the content. In Luke's version, this idea of doing to others what you wish they would do for you is tied directly into Jesus' teaching on loving your enemies. Now, the fact is, in an age long before any kind of audio or video recording, Jesus probably delivered this sermon in whole or in part in more than one setting and may have organized the parts of it differently from time to time. Now, you are listening to me preach online right now. If you were to listen to me preach this same sermon at our in-person live service, you'd recognize it as the same sermon, but you might also hear me make some changes. Now, what won't change are the big ideas. The bottom line is that Jesus is challenging his followers to live out an extraordinary kind of grace toward others. We should be good to others because our Heavenly Father is good to us. We should extend grace to others and shun self-righteousness just as we so desire others to show grace to us. And the added challenge, which Jesus makes abundantly clear in the version Luke has recorded, is that this sort of grace-infused kindness is not simply the way we're to treat the people we like. It extends to our enemies as well. And that brings us to question number two. Is Jesus' teaching here any different than the hopping-on-one-legged version given by Rabbi Shammai? Well, let's put them both side by side and see how they compare. Now, Shammai said, What is hateful to you, do not do to anyone else. What Jesus said was, Whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. Now, at first blush, they seem almost identical. Obviously, Shammai phrases his in a negative, don't do to others what you don't want done to you, whereas Jesus states it as a positive, do to others what you want done to you. But either way, I'm showing deference to others. However, when you think about it more, you realize there is a world of difference between the two. Burnett and I had an afternoon at Disneyland's California Adventure a few years ago. While we were walking around, we came to the viewing platform overlooking the ride called Grizzly River Run. 
Now, for this ride, the riders are seated in what looks like a large raft floating down a wild river. And the big final thrill of the ride is a steep plunge down a large incline into a pool of water at the bottom. The raft is designed to spin around and there's lots of splashing and usually somebody gets wet. However, once the raft has gone through that big drop, the rest of the ride is just a lazy float back to the starting point. Or at least it can be. As Burnett and I stood on the viewing platform watching rafts filled with screaming people race down the flume, I noticed a device on the platform where you could deposit a quarter. There wasn't any explanation as to what it did, but after watching another couple who knew the system better, we figured it out. Turns out that if you deposited a quarter, there would be a short delay, and then two small water cannons, strategically aimed at the lazy river, would suddenly fire. And if your timing was just right, they would deliver one final, very wet surprise to the unsuspecting folks that were floating by in the lazy river. You know, I rarely carry change, but it just so happened that I discovered there was this lonely quarter in my pocket. At the top of the flume, I saw a raft preparing to descend. Seated within was a family of screaming, laughing, excited, and only slightly damp adventurers. I saw the log descend, the water sprayed, the laughing riders shouted out their good fortune that nobody had gotten really wet. I dropped the quarter in the slot and walked away. There was a brief delay, and then we heard the water cannons fire. The family once again screamed because the timing had been perfect. There was not a dry person left in the boat. My wife didn't want to walk near me for a while. Now, using the standard of Shammai, should I have dropped the quarter in the slot? Well, probably not. If I had been the one riding in that raft, relieved that I had not gotten soaked, I'm pretty sure I would not have wanted some bored spectator dropping his quarter in the water cannon slot. However, not dropping the quarter in the slot is just a passive activity. I just don't do things I don't want done to me. What Jesus suggests is active. Don't just refrain from bad things, go and do good things for others. Take the initiative not just to withhold bad things, but to infuse good things into the lives of others. The very same kinds of good things you wish others would infuse into your life. Don't just keep the quarter in your pocket. Go buy some ice cream cones and pass them around and make their day at the park even better. Actually, the way Luke records this golden rule, it goes even farther than random acts of kindness. It looks for ways to bless enemies. In that case, if I'm the guy riding in the raft and some wiseacre drops a quarter in the slot and hoses me down, then when I get off the ride, still dripping wet, I track him down and I buy him an ice cream cone because I really like ice cream cones and I want him to have a great time at the park, despite the fact that I am dripping wet. See what I mean? The Jesus rule is a lot more challenging than the Shammai rule. And this brings us to our third question. 
What would it look like if we really took up the challenge? I'll tell you one thing. It's not what comes naturally to me. It's a challenge that I need to have set before me repeatedly. And I don't think I'm the only one. In fact, I'm sure I'm not because the writers of the New Testament repeated this command in different ways to different audiences because they needed to be reminded as well. The Apostle Paul certainly thought it was important. He wrote about it in Romans 13 verses 9 and 10. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Or how about this from Galatians 5.14? For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus' half-brother, James, thought it was important too. In fact, he names this commandment something even greater than the golden rule. He called it the royal law. Look at this from James 2.8. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. You know what this law isn't? It's not a calculated manipulation to get something in return. The principle isn't do to others what you wish they would do for you because if you do, chances are good they'll feel obligated to return the favor. Now what Jesus is calling us to is a life of generous grace free of demands or expectations. One of the commentators that I was reading made the observation that in the original Greek language in which this was recorded, all of the verbs are in the present tense. See it? Do. Do it. Do it now. Do it continually. In other words, this kind of behavior is expected to be constant and ongoing. So how do we do this? Here's how Martin Lloyd-Jones suggested we go about it. He says, if you're in trouble at all as to how you should deal with others and behave with respect to them, this is how you should act. You do not start with the other person. You start by asking yourself, what is it I like? What are the things that please me? What are the things that help and encourage me? Then ask yourself, what things do I dislike? What are the things that upset me and bring out the worst in me? What are the things that are hateful and discouraging? You make a list of both these things, your likes and dislikes, and you work them out in detail. Not only in deeds, but also in thoughts and speech with respect to the whole of your life and activities. Well, let's break that down into its parts. First, he says that we don't start with the other person, we start with ourselves. One of the things I've often heard people say in reference to this command that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves is that if we're going to love others well, we must first learn to love ourselves. I would readily acknowledge that often our ability to love others well is warped and stunted by our own wounds and dysfunctions. A father who has grown up in a home where discipline was harsh and words of affirmation non-existent may struggle in his own parenting to know how to father with gentleness 
or feel at a loss when it comes to verbally expressing love to his wife or children. Emotionally healthy people certainly are better equipped to treat others in emotionally healthy ways. So from that perspective, I agree that a person who has low self-esteem or even self-loathing may have a hard time expressing love to others. However, when Jesus talked about loving our neighbor and doing to others as we wish they would do to us, it was not really a command to enhance our own self-image. In fact, the danger, I fear, is that by inserting the idea of learning to love self as an unstated prerequisite to loving others, we actually end up subverting the whole intent of Jesus' teaching. You know what my heart is more inclined to do than almost anything else? Care about me. Nothing would make me happier than to find a clear command of the Bible that says, Tim, the most important thing God wants you to do is to love yourself better. Man, I'm all about that. When it comes to loving myself, I am down for some radical obedience to a command like that. You go right back to the Garden of Eden and you'll find that the first thing that got us in trouble wasn't low self-esteem. It was the temptation to think that we could make our own rules and put ourselves on par with God. While self-love may get distorted in all sorts of unhealthy ways, I don't think there's really any question that the vast majority of us, even on our worst days, still operate out of love for ourselves. Let me take an extreme example. I spent some time years ago leading a Bible study for a group of guys at the Los Angeles Rescue Mission. If you talk to folks who end up in a Skid Row Rescue Mission, you'll hear heartbreaking stories of people who have come to hate their lives and themselves. One of my guys shared with me that he and his mom, who was a hooker, used to shoot dope together. He ended up on the streets after she died in prison of a drug overdose. Now, did this guy love himself in any kind of productive way? Well, hardly. Before coming to faith, he was filled with self-hate and shame. However, in many ways, he still did love himself. He took risks to steal so he could buy drugs, so he could numb the pain in his heart. Why go to all the effort? Because he didn't want himself to be in pain. He dove in dumpsters for food and staked out turf on a sidewalk because he wanted himself to have food to eat and a place to sleep. He eventually checked himself into the rescue mission and enrolled in a recovery program that required him to undergo a brutal detox regimen because he knew that unless something radically changed, he was going to be a dead man. Why would he do that? Well, because he cared about himself. Now, were all the ways that he had tried to love himself good? Well, absolutely not. So many of them had been completely destructive. But my point is that regardless of the dysfunctions, he actually did have a compelling, self-interested love. He wanted his life to be pain-free. He wanted his basic needs to be met. Ultimately, he came to desire something deeper and better. He realized what he really wanted was for the hole in his heart to be filled by the only one who could truly fill it. He surrendered himself to Jesus. 
When Jesus was talking to his students, he knew that they too had that intrinsic love for self. It was that love, misdirected, that led them into so many of the faulty choices that he was calling them to repent of. Think back over some of the topics Jesus has already addressed in this sermon. Jesus warned against those who held on to anger toward their brother or who sought to get revenge. Well, why would someone hold on to bitterness? Because they believe that someone else has in some way done them harm and they want to punish and repel people who invade their space. We love ourselves. Jesus warned against lust, adultery, and divorce. Well, why would anyone treat another person simply as a sex object or walk away from a spouse because they thought they'd found a better deal? Well, because enhancing my pleasure means more to me than the dignity or the trust of another person. Because I totally love myself. Jesus warned against those who used spiritual practices like giving to the poor or praying or even fasting as ways to make a public show of their personal piety. Why would people try to show off like that? Well, because they love themselves and they want to enhance their image by trying to get others to love and admire them as well. How about anxiety? Why did Jesus need to warn people against living anxious, worried lives? Because in my love for myself, I am tempted to be consumed with looking into the future and trying to protect myself from what might happen. So, in starting with ourselves, the need isn't really to spend any more time on trying to learn how to be more interested in myself. Too often, that is just about the only thing I am interested in. Now, the challenge is to redirect that obsessive self-interest into an equally probing interest in the welfare of others. What do they need? Dr. Lloyd-Jones suggests that in looking at ourselves, what we are doing is trying to figure out what are those core desires, the needs, the fears that drive us. What is it I like? What are the things that please me? What are the things that help and encourage me? What things do I dislike? What are the things that upset me and bring out the worst in me? What are the things that are hateful and discouraging? And then he takes it a step further. He suggests that we make a list and work it out in detail. In other words, get specific. Not only in deeds, but also in thought and speech with respect to the whole of your life and activities. Let me give you an exercise for this afternoon. Pick one relationship that matters to you. Maybe one that matters because it is currently causing you a lot of frustration. What is the nature of that relationship? Is it neighbor to neighbor? Parent to child? Maybe parent to adult child? Colleague to colleague or employee to boss or spouse to spouse? Now, put yourself in the relational role of the other person. If it's neighbor to neighbor, that should be pretty easy. You both are in the same role. You know what it's like to be a neighbor to someone. If it's parent to child or employee to boss, sometimes it takes a bit more work because you need to project yourself into a different role. But chances are you've been in that role at some point. If you're a parent struggling with a child, 
you were also at one time a child struggling with a parent. Maybe you've never been a boss on a work site, but you've had times when you were depending on others to get things done, so you have at least some reference point. Now envisioning yourself in that role, start asking yourself these questions. What would I like? What would be important to me? What would encourage or help me in this role? What would I dislike or what would bring out the worst in me? And be specific. Work out the details. You know what you'll have when you finish that list? A plan of action for how you should treat that other person. Not just things to avoid, but things to do. Things that will bless, help, possibly shock them. Let me conclude with this. As I was thinking about this whole idea of the golden rule, I asked myself what it looked like in the life of Jesus. It's one thing to tell others what to do, but what about Jesus? Did he take his own medicine? And the scene that suddenly came to mind was Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. There, in traumatizing emotional pain, knowing the suffering and loss that he would face within the next few hours, Jesus prayed an agonizing prayer. He fell on his face and prayed saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. What did Jesus, in loving himself as a man, desire for himself? Well, his prayer was that if there was any way possible, the cup of God's wrath would be lifted from him. The sincere heart desire that he, an innocent man, and the beloved Son of God would be spared the suffering of the cross and separation from his Father. What do I desire for myself? I guess it's really the same thing that Jesus desired for himself. When all is said and done, I want to be delivered from punishment and be right with God. But that's a desire that seems doomed to disappointment. In myself, if I'm brutally honest, I don't see any way I can ever deserve heaven. I'm the guy that given an opportunity would drop a quarter in the slot at someone else's expense just for my own amusement. I'm the guy that has a track record a mile long of loving myself more than anybody else. I'm the guy that far too easily lets anger simmer in my heart and pride guide my choices. If God gave me exactly what I deserve for all the times I've chosen selfishly, it would not end well for me. How about you? What did Jesus in going to the cross do for us? Well, the very thing he desired for himself. He lifted the cup of God's wrath from us, not because we were innocent. In fact, the only reason he had to do it for us is because we were absolutely unqualified to do it for ourselves. As he hung on that cross, some of his enemies literally stood in front of him jeering and gloating, 
And yet all the while, Jesus was praying to his Father for their forgiveness. And why did Jesus do that? Well, it is as he prayed. Not my will, but yours be done. He did it in obedience to his Father. He did it out of love for us. In making the greatest sacrifice, he fulfilled to the fullest the two greatest commandments. To love the Lord God with all of his heart, mind, and strength, and to love his neighbor, you and me, and even the jeering enemies at the foot of a cross, as much as he loved himself. It is a challenge to do for others what we would want them to do for us. It's an even bigger challenge when those others are people we are at odds with, even enemies. Well, yes, it is, but the one who taught those words up on the mountain is also the one who climbed another hill to go to a cross for us. If we're going to live as mountain folk, we need to follow him.